Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. It's mid-October, which means that it's just about time for Home Movie Day, an annual celebration of amateur films and filmmakers that takes place at the New Haven Museum this Saturday, October 21st from noon to 4 p.m. On today's show, I'll be joined by Yale film archivists Brian Meacham and Molly Wheeler, who are the organizers of the New Haven instance of this international event, as well as by Yale University Art Gallery Museum staffer Rachel Mahalko. This will be the third Home Movie Day-related episode that we've done here on Deep Focus in as many years. Back in 2015, we first spoke with Brian and Molly about the background and basics of the event. In 2016, we spoke with Brian, Molly, and local filmmaker David Pilot to get a participant's perspective on sharing old home movies in a public context. You can find those older episodes at deepfocusradio.com. And on today's show, I'm very excited to say that we're going to dive deep into the actual work itself that film and media archivists do. What are the tools and materials they work with? What are the challenges they encounter and the solutions they provide? And what is the broader social value of film and media preservation in the 21st century? Uh, We'll also get a live video demonstration on how to inspect and repair Super 8 film, he asked with a question mark to Brian. He nods. Excellent. Uh, So please check out the New Haven Independent Facebook Live feed if you'd like to see that demo uh, go down flawlessly later this hour. (laughs) Um, but without further ado, I'd like to welcome back to the show, Brian Meacham and Molly Wheeler, and welcome to the show as first-time guest, Rachel Mahalko. Brian is the Archive and Special Collections Manager at the Yale Film Study Center. Molly's an archivist at Yale's Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, and Rachel is a museum assistant at the Yale University Art Gallery. Uh, welcome back, Brian and Molly, and welcome to the show, Rachel. It's so good to have you all in the studio today. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Yeah. All right, so... Uh, for people who may not have heard the first uh, two home movie episodes that we've did in the the past two years, um, how about Brian and then Molly? Uh, what is Home Movie Day, and and what should people expect to find at the New Haven Museum this Saturday? Sure, uh, Home Movie Day is now in its fifteenth year. Is that right, Molly? I believe mm-hmm. of being observed at hundreds of different locations around the world, whether it is. Uh, libraries, museums, film archives, community centers, and it is a chance for people to reconnect with their home movies. Uh, home movies were, uh, you know, a, a ubiquitous form of family uh, recording, family storytelling for many years, from say the 1920s through to the present. But for most of that time, they were shot on film, eight millimeter, super eight millimeter, sixteen millimeter. And those technologies uh, don't really exist for most people in terms of playback these days. So what we uh, at Home Movie Day do is try to try to have people come from the community, bring their home movies, and we bring uh, expertise in inspecting, repairing, and preparing film for projection. And we bring the projectors, and we show the films, and we love to have people talk about them. Sometimes they're seeing them for the first time. Sometimes they are uh, well-worn home movies that they know every beat and every move of, and they can narrate exactly what's happening. And it's just, it's really entertaining whether you have your own or you just come to watch. And Molly, what is the, like, maybe what's the the structure of the event on on Saturday from noon to four? I mean, people are going to start showing up, bringing in their films from, is it from noon to two? And you and Brian will be inspecting them, and then the screenings will be from... Two to four. I could be making, mm-hmm. if, if that's wrong, feel no, free to correct me. All exactly right. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Timeline <laughs> is right. Is there anything, uh, you know, for people who may have been to home movie days in years past, anything uh, different about the structure of the event this year? Or no, it's, it's sort of a well oiled machine at this point. We like knowing what to anticipate since 
um, that's sort of all we can anticipate you know, because the films are going to be different. The people bringing in the films are usually different. So once we have everything sort of settled and organized, we can then just sort of roll with whatever the film may be. The only thing I, I guess I will add to the structure that you shared was that um, noon to two is when we do urge people to bring their films in so that we will have time to prepare them for projection. But if someone rolls in at 3.30, um, depending on how many films we have, we can probably get that inspected and project it. Um, so it can be a rolling thing depending on people's day. Now, I know that Rachel and I attended Home Movie Day two years ago, yeah. I think was when we were there together. Uh, and a few films stick out in my mind. One uh, is of a... I think from from the 40s or 50s, and it showed a, a trolley going through, or a streetcar going through East Rock. I think it was a very snowy day, and yeah. I think that's when I first learned that East Rock uh, was a predominantly Polish neighborhood for most of the mid-20th century. I also remember one from pre-revolutionary uh, era Cuba, and someone going, someone's father going on a, a mm -hmm. vacation to, to Cuba. Um, are there any home movies from last year in particular that stick out in your mind? Uh, or any, was it, or maybe give if you if maybe not last year in particular, right. but could you give our listeners uh, a, an example of what kinds of movies they might see on Saturday if they show up at the museum? Um, yeah, there are. Well, those two are, always, good, are good examples that you yeah. gave. Can yeah, can I can I just jump in? <laughs> yeah, real sure. Quick? Please. Um, there is one that I remember from two years ago that I really loved. Uh, you guys may remember this one, and I hope you do because my memory is not great. Um, <laughs> but there were two. There was a uh, an older gentleman who brought it in and it was a film of he and his friend or brother maybe who they had directed their own film oh, yeah. as children and and that was uh, a <laughs> that was the was horror their film movie. Mm -hmm. yeah. yes yeah. yeah that was great yeah that yeah. Was, yeah. yeah so that that's that a whole goes, genre yeah from from the home movie to almost the amateur film production right. which mm -hmm. which you know is is so great to see you know a lot of times it'll be these sort of uh just you know actuality films of of a, of a trolley going down the street but sometimes you'll get a full-on production with cast and crew title cards and obviously you know well thought out uh you know costumes and props and settings and everything. And special effects and special i remember effects. quite quite oh, a bit of goop right because right? yes. it was a horror film right? yeah. i think it yeah. made yeah. in east lime or yeah. somewhere east of here yeah and i remember it maybe a doll like flying from a bridge to right. simulate <laughs> the, yep. the body of yeah yeah that's, that's right great. yeah you all have better memory than we do, I think. <laughs> um, another one I, I remember watching was uh, just like a standard family Thanksgiving and it was just like a family home video and that was actually really interesting to watch because I think it was from either the 60s or the 70s but um, it, like it seemed really mundane right but you kind of see like a day in the life of a family in the or not day in the life but like a family holiday like a get together but you know you see the family in the kitchen you see what they were wearing you see what their home decor looked like mm -hmm. it was just a kind of like a still life almost of what it looked like in the 1970s. Yeah. Well, yeah. that sort of, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, oh, yeah, Rachel, you sort of nail what can be really interesting about Home Movie Day for people that, um, I mean, for everyone, but maybe, maybe someone that doesn't have a home movie, um, maybe never even shot them themselves, but they could come in and see their community through the years. Um, sort of one of my favorite things is the way that playgrounds, I've talked about this previous years, but the uh, are, you know the structure of playgrounds and how those have really changed. They look downright uh, negligent and murderous now, though that's what we grew up on. Um, you know, you see buildings that aren't standing anymore, cars that aren't driven. So it's sort of this archaeology of the community or another community, um, and you know, just simple mannerisms that are shifted that we sort of take for granted. Um, but once you see it all in moving image, uh, so much can be appreciated. 
Um, Brian and Molly, we've had you on the show a number of times in the past to talk about uh, different kind of film archival projects that you've worked on, and whether the Yale Film Archive, uh, the Treasures in the Yale Film Archive series, the Herb Graff Film Collection. Uh, and we've spoken a lot about the kind of contents of films that you've worked on. But one thing that I'm kind of looking forward to geeking out a little bit to today is to hear a bit about and to learn about what the actual process of film preservation, and restoration, and, and archiving is like. Almost, I mean, I, I don't want to borrow you from talking about what images are going, what stories are going to be presented, or what uh, what materials we're going to be looking at on the screen, what information. But um, I think this is a part of uh, of film that probably not a lot of non specialists think about or, or know much about. So. Today is going to be all about um, about the the materials and, and how you work with them. So maybe Brian, I'll send this first question your way, and we, we, I, I know you've brought some stuff to, to show yeah. and tell, and we'll jump into that in a second. But um, could you start off by giving us a kind of a, a kind of broad, basic definition of what film preservation is and what what a film preservationist does? Sure. Well, film, yeah, th- those terms: conservation, restoration, archiving, preservation. They all have separate meanings and the meanings are not necessarily always agreed upon by everybody who uses them but in a general term you know film film archiving uh is you know could could sort of be an overarching term film preservation would be the activity of of taking an older film and making a new quote unquote preservation master or preservation copy of it so the the film itself no longer, you know, you, you're you're not accessing maybe the original, but you're you've now made a preservation copy from which you can make a new uh, screening copy or a new uh, a new print or a new digital master that can be shown to the public, and you try to get that film back to its original state. You you don't improve it, you don't colorize it, you don't sharpen it, you don't change the aspect ratio. You just try to get it back to the way it was originally and sort of reverse the ravages of time. Uh, conservation is a more common activity. That's pretty much what I'm doing on most mo- on a daily basis. Is trying to just stop any further degradation of the film. I'm just conserving it. I'm just putting it in the you know the cold vault, uh, lower humidity. I'm I'm protecting it. I'm putting it in better cans. I'm taking it out of a rusty can. I'm taking it off of a junky le- uh, reel and putting it on a on a polypropylene archival reel. That sort of thing. So I guess that that sort of conservation and and preservation, restoration would be something where maybe you're taking multiple sources, you're using digital tools to take out scratches, you're trying to optimize uh, something, uh, you're restoring a stereo soundtrack that might have been lost. There's a, a sort of a more a kind of active activities that go into restoration, try to try to bring back something that uh, parts of it have been lost and you need to sort of almost recreate them in a way. And this is something that you've brought up a number of times when we've spoken about the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive series, is that there is a... Um, a kind of mantra of the film archivist community that goes that um, film, like film preservation doesn't really work without presentation and, and kind of sharing the, the works that you are conserving or restoring or presenting. Um, and so how, how does that aspect of presentation, of, of display, of projection factor into a film archivist's responsibilities? Well, yeah, yeah. Preservation without access, you know, yeah. that's. I mean, it's preservation, but it isn't the. It isn't the full cycle. It doesn't. It doesn't bring the back the film to audiences, which is really important. And it's one of the great things about Home Movie Day is, you know, we're actually not even. We're not really preserving these films. We're sort of repairing and kind of conserving them in the moment, and then sharing them again. And that's, you know, that's something that we find really important. But yeah, of course, you know, access is key to the activities of any film archive. Getting films out there in a variety of different ways, whether it's public screenings, research access. 
um, something that I'll talk about later with the home movie that I brought here, um, uh, digital scanning and copying those films so they can be seen by multiple people in multiple parts of the world at the same time uh, and you know, sort of won't do any further damage to a film format that can't really be easily projected by many people these days. So yeah, access is, is completely key to the film archive activity. Molly, when you sit down with a film on, let's say someone brings one in at, at 12 o'clock on Saturday to the New Haven Museum, uh, they give you, well, maybe what, what is it that they're going to be giving to you? What are the materials that you're going to receive? And then what are the questions you're asking yourself as you're evaluating what needs to be done to this film in order to get it into a state uh, kind of adequate to uh, present at the New Haven Museum or to return to this family or, or whatever the end goal may be? Um. Yeah, so actually the person that does that, um, the inspection work, is Andrea McCarty, who will be doing it for the third year. Um, and so she could say more about that. But upon drop-off, we do sort of, um, you know, we catch the person's name so that we can reconnect them to the film. But we also identify uh, the, the format, uh, write down some information on the outside of the box, and then we pass it on to Andrea um, and then that piece of paper kind of she makes some notes and that piece of paper will travel back to the owner so that they might understand more about the needs that their film has. But she's looking for um, for tears, poor repairs, uh, shrinkage, some gauge shrinkage that might make it so that it can't run through the projector properly. Um, if yeah, if there were poorly repaired tears, then it also uh, or bad splices, it would come undone in the projection. So um, in the projector. So we just make sure that uh, no action of ours while passing over the film will cause any further damage. And sometimes we have had to just say this is a little bit too far gone. But we always make sure that we make recommendations on what to do with these films, so that while the viewer may, the person may not be able to gain access to the film that day as part of Home Movie Day, we tell them um, how they could reformat it so that they could see it in another way another day. And I think uh, we're about to kind of see Brian take, take a look at a film and maybe ask some of those questions yeah. and see how those uh, repairs may work. But I, I want to ask uh, Rachel one question first, and that's I know that your background may be a bit more with uh, still photography than moving image photography, but what are the questions that you kind of ask yourself or that you've been trained uh, to ask when evaluating the condition of uh, say, a, a still photograph, um, both for the purpose of, of restoration, but also archiving or, or any other uh, task that you are looking to perform with it. Right. So, I mean, it's 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 fairly similar, I think, to, to film, to moving image film, just because you look for a lot of the same preservation risks on uh, a plastic base with the chemical emulsion. Um, but the, the first thing that you want to do with photography is, is identify uh, what kind of photo it is, because that makes a huge impact on how you should store it and if you should separate it from from other things. Um, in archives, you always try to maintain the original order for things, but for a lot of the like a lot of the time with still images, uh, they're often interleaved with with albums or just other paper collections. So, um, which I think is a little bit unlike the film archives. You don't really often find film in this because you just can't file it the same way in a folder with paper. Um, I'm sure you do actually more often than I think. Mm -hmm. But um but yeah, the first the first step you have to take is identifying what kind of photograph it is and then from there you have to figure out how you will store it and you know, some things require cold storage, some things can't be in cold storage. Um and you have to figure out what level of deterioration it has too. Um so, you know, if it's bubbling, maybe it's more urgent than something that's been 
in a corner for decades, just flat and a-okay just for now. Um, but the climate is the most important thing, too. Well, I, I know that we're in a somewhat kind of sweltering small box of rooms. So I hope that the, the temperature in this studio is not ruining whatever you've brought in today, Brian. But let's, you know, let's, uh, well, let me say that you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen. And in honor of Home Movie Day on Saturday, October 21st at the New Haven Museum, I'm talking with Brian Meacham, Molly Wheeler, and Rachel Mahalko about film and media preservation. Uh, so, Brian, you very generously brought in some of the tools of the trade from your office at the Yale Film Study Center. Uh, and if people are interested in uh, seeing what Brian has brought, you can check out the New Haven Independence Facebook live feed. Uh, could you tell us a bit about uh, what is sitting on the table in front of you and uh, and how does it work? Sure. Okay. So this is a, a homemade Super 8 Rewind bench. Um, these rewinders uh, are fitted with uh, a shaft that fits Super 8 reels. And they've been bolted to a piece of wood. It can be any length. These were probably attached to something uh, permanent uh, before I found them on eBay and bought them for Home Movie Day. <laughs> um, uh, what I brought with me is a reel uh, of home movies from a collection uh, donated by a filmmaker um, associated with Yale who collects home movies from India. And he, when he returns to India every year, he gathers up the home movies that the, um, the flea market uh, sellers have collected for him over the year. And uh, he has donated those to our collection. This one simply says Africa on it. I don't know where I should be putting this. Oh, but I think that's, that's okay. Maybe just yeah. lift it yeah. up and wave right, it around. It I'm sure it, some camera a, will pick yeah, it up. Yeah, it's a plastic <laughs> can. It says Family 2 on the back, and then it has an 8 on it, and then it says Africa um, in Dymo label on the, uh, on the reel itself. So I'm going to open it up and put it on here and see what we have. And uh, what, what gauge of this? This is Super 8, so sometime uh, after the 1960s. It also has a regular 8 hub inside it which i have to take out um i'm not sure exactly why probably so he didn't have to have a super 8 rewind bench uh to to look at it um because super 8 and regular 8 have different sized hubs uh, so anyway that's neither here nor there but um it looks like we start right on film so i want to put some leader on this because that can't go through a projector and i shouldn't you know i don't want to touch it i don't want to rewind starting with with that so and what wait. what is leader Leader is uh, this white plastic film. It's exactly the same width and has the same perforations as film, but it doesn't have any image on it. It's just like a protective kind of leader. Hmm. Can't <laughs> use the word to define the word, but that's what I call it. But that's the beautiful thing of having a video feed as well. You can yep. just wave it yes. and people know what okay. you're talking about. Yeah. So let's put some leader on. I brought my splicer. So this is a little um, Italian plastic guillotine splicer um, where you... You put the film in, and then you chunk it down, and you have these blades that cut off the excess tape. So you all should feel free to talk while I'm doing this, because this is going to take a little bit here. So. I guess it might be good to point out that um, at the point that these films were being shot through time, anyone that shot film knew how to do what Brian's doing. Um, you know, the same way that we see... Gosh, I was starting to watch some show last night. Mind Hunter, Manhunter, I don't know. And it was just showing someone threading a reel-to-reel machine and how uh, that seems highly specialized and complicated now. But everyone, so many people had reel-to-reel machines. They knew how to use them, thread them, how to troubleshoot some of the issues. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it, there's something precious, uh, but it, we should recognize how common it was at one point. So... I guess we'll talk a bit about this towards the end of the episode when we think about what the kind of broader social value of film archives and film archivists are today. But 
when you think about how this used to be, like what Brian is doing right now, used to be uh, uh, pretty uh, common knowledge or commonly accessible to to film fans and filmmakers. Um, do you think of that as a kind of major loss in kind of cultural understanding of how to interact with uh, media that are so central to our day-to-day lives? Or is this uh, an antiquated form that only specialists should really know how to do now? And it's it's okay that the broader public is, uh, you know, as familiar with how to work that as, you know, when they lift the hood of their car. Hmm. I guess I, I, oh, yeah. No, go ahead. No, you no. know. You'll <laughs> go uh, well, Rachel I, and then Molly. <laughs> okay, I was just gonna say. I mean, I think it's it's important, of course, to know how to do this for for specialists. Like somebody must know how to do this. We don't want to lose that knowledge. But um, I mean, there's also much more knowledge that we have to know today. Um, I mean, we have we have different kinds of formats of of media and moving images, and it's online. We have time based media that that people don't know enough about, and um, I don't know. I think that our energies are focused for good reason on on other sorts of formats, um, and everyday everyday kind of ways to play movies. Um, I mean, I guess turning on Netflix doesn't really take that much knowledge to <laughs> do. But I mean, you have to know how to work a TV or a computer or a smart TV, which actually is really difficult. Okay. Um, anyway, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's really. Yeah. No, it's those are excellent points. It's true. Um, yeah. I mean, it's all relative. I mean, yeah, this was the technology. And as you say, I mean, I, I have a certain, I don't know, I don't think it's nostalgia, but I do miss a certain um, like mechanical ability that is demanded of me in everyday objects. There are, right, I don't, I'm not doing that with my car. I still, it's still every day being presented to me as an opportunity. But sometimes in these everyday items, uh, you know, like a camera or uh, you know, shooting video of my kids or something. You know, I feel sort of locked out of some of these things. Um, but that's a personal preference, maybe not a cultural critique. I definitely feel that way too, though. I mean, for certain um, digital platforms, you're sort of dealing with somebody else's template mm-hmm. on something rather than going hands in, hands on yourself um, and and building something. Not that you're building, and I guess this is a template also, but you're it's having that like touch of it just makes it slightly more, I don't know, something you own, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a conversation that people who love film are always having about really all aspects of movies, whether it be a longing for um, more like practical special effects or to see movies presented in 35 millimeter versus just like a screening of a Blu-ray. I think that there's always not just in the kind of specialist community, but a longing to get back to uh, an understanding of how you know the the history of film developed, and also maybe the almost imperceptible, uh, almost subconscious qualities of movies that come through when you're watching uh, kind of analog, uh, analog made material as opposed to digital. But maybe as as Brian's just about done setting up, Molly, I I know that. Well, maybe correct me if you're wrong, but you your area of expertise at Beinecke is on digital preservation. Um. Well, no. <laughs> or, not so much so, I'm, i mean i'm sort of no go on yeah oh well i was gonna ask how if if you do work in digital but if not then this may not be an appropriate question but you know what are when preserving digital or video materials as opposed to film um how how is the process analogous and what are some questions that you're asking yourself when uh when looking to preserve uh, material that you can't just plunk on on a table kind of physically but are rather 
working through on a computer or, or some other uh, digital device. Yeah, so um, my job is more that I work with the analog material or, I mean, or digital video cassette, but um, often the, the objects themselves, and then I sort of shepherd them through the process of being reformatted mm-hmm. and uh, sort of uh, cataloging them and capturing information about it. You have to create a certain amount of metadata before you, just data about an object, data about data, um, so that you then, when it becomes a digital file and its representation is a digital file, you can understand what it is, what it was supposed to be. Uh, but for people that do specifically digital preservation. And so I do, my work does dovetail with that because I create these files that then need to be preserved. Um, It's sort of a whole other layer. And a lot of the archives that we're getting now are just things that were directly shot to file. So it really, it's this more of a file management and file preservation, born digital is what we call it in the field. Um, So that almost becomes more of um, like digital forensics, figuring out if if something is what it says it is, because you can't just look at it like this. Um, you have to take just as much responsibility for correctly identifying it, but you need to have certain uh, tools, certain machines, certain programs. Uh, we just actually, the Beinecke just hired for the first time, or the, I'm sorry, the library at Yale just hired a uh, software preservation pres- preservationist. So they're actually going to be working with how to preserve software and preserve the environments in which some of these things were created. And then that gets into like emulation. If, if the environment in which you initially experienced the um, the file is really important. You somehow have to build that to then appreciate it. So digital preservation is really exciting when you're actually looking at born digital material, but uh, it, it is a whole field that I haven't, I'm not really a part of. We do have people at the Beinecke that do that. Um, and it, it sounds like maybe a, a key difference or, or one of the most important elements of digital preserve preservation is that metadata, that information about the information and Mm -hmm. making sure that that is correct, both for uh, preservation purposes, but also for archival. And I know that, Rachel, when you gave a great presentation about what you do at a Bradley Street Bicycle Co-op bike uh, shop talk a couple of months ago, uh, I know you spoke a lot about... um, about all of the kind of information that can be gleaned from looking at photographs, at looking at what's written on a photograph, what's on the edge of it, um, and how important it is, or kind of all the all of the other challenges that arise when maybe you have the actual physical medium in a good condition, but then how do you store it? How do you access it later? How do you catalog it so that like people can find it in the future? Um, I don't know. Maybe can you? tell our listeners a bit about like what information about the f- about a photograph can you find just just looking at it like what you're looking around the edges and then how does that make its way into i don't know the the archival record of what a museum keeps track of sure um i you know i i actually there are there are differences that are very very small in the photographs that an, an art museum um has in their collection and there are we separate them out by fine art photographs and um, archival photographs. Um, so I don't know, I know in our catalog record for the fine art photographs, I mean, it's mostly just about the content, whereas in the archives, it's it's more about the provenance and the condition and the handwritten notes on the back of it um, that tell a story, I guess, more than, um, more than the fine art fi- finished product would. Um, I mean, they tell their own stories, but uh, the narrative around an archive collection is, is I guess, based more on its provenance and, uh, you know, proofs that the, the photographer may have, have developed 
just in advance of the finished product. Um, I mean, you can tell a lot just from the proofs. Like if you're looking at a contact sheet, you can tell like what a, what a photographer liked or didn't like. Um, if you're looking at something like an album, you can tell, or like like a family album, you can tell the chronology that the family wanted to tell by putting this together. Um, there are, the notes sometimes describe, like on the back of it, the notes will describe what's in the scene. Um, there's sometimes a date on it. In terms of like just the material alone, you can tell, you can kind of date a photograph by looking at the back of it if it says Kodak and there are different notches on different, on like negatives. There are notch codes that Kodak used to date their, um, their material and to identify whether it's acetate or nitrate, like the chemicals that they used in it. Um, so there, I mean, it depends on what you're looking for. There's tons of information. And then the con, like, of course, the content of the image, you can glean a lot from that too. But so there's always a, like a trail of clues that, that inform yeah. you about the nature of the material, the, the age of it, um, and also the content of it. And I wonder if maybe that we could segue back over to Brian. And I realize the microphone may be in your way if you need to jerk that up. No, or it's move fine. It I realize I'm making this like subtle rattling noise throughout <laughs> no, the whole conversation. Fine. I'm sorry. It's, no, it's um, a so, good background. So, yes. so, um, so what, what do you have set up? And also maybe as, uh, you know, we're talking through these questions about what you learn about the film from from looking at it, uh, yep. what 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 can you tell us about uh, this this film from stringing it up? Sure. So I don't know that it's Africa. Um, it could be, but it doesn't. It, most of the films that we have from this collection, um, if it's if it's if it says New York, it's picture it's 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 film of the Statue of Liberty and uh, and the Empire State Building. This would you know and you know uh, typical tourism uh, material. This doesn't. Seem, strike me quite that way. I don't see any safaris or anything that looks typically African, but it seems to be family wandering around outside. We have some um, some cows pulling a, a wagon. We have some statues. We have some kids playing. Um, uh, Rachel mentioned the the edge codes or notch codes. Uh, film has the similar edge codes because Kodak made the film, uh, the motion picture film, as well as the still film. And we have an edge code chart here that tells us uh, exactly which little um, symbols uh, correlate to which years of production. And this film has a plus on it, which for Kodachrome, uh, uh, for small gauge film, is actually 1969, which fits with uh, what I see in the film as far as the clothing and the cars and things like that. So I believe this is a, a Kodachrome uh, reversal uh, original uh, shot uh, in 1969 or, or maybe just thereafter, maybe in 1970. Um and it has been projected. It has some uh, frame burns in it, some burns where the, the for whatever reason, the film got stuck in front of the lamp mm. and the lamp melted that particular frame. It also has a number of cement splices, which means that the uh, the person who shot it um, didn't just shoot an entire roll. This is much longer than, than a roll that would fit in a camera anyway. But these pieces were edited together in a kind of um, intentional way. Cuts were made and splices were made with um, cement, which is another thing that you know Molly mentioned, everybody knowing how to do this sort of thing. They wouldn't have used a tape splicer like this. They would have used a cement splicer, which means a little bottle with a little brush and some cement, and then and then a kind of a heavy weight to press down on it. It was all it was very hands on, and you you a lot of the same type of people seem to be the ones who would do this. You get a sense of who the people were from the kinds of shots that they would make, and the kinds of edits they would make, and the care that they would put into even sometimes making their own customized titles for these films. They would shoot little movable letters on a, on a colored background and put that first so you would know what you were seeing. This one in particular doesn't happen to have that, but I just love thinking about the kind of people who made these films. 
So uh, you've mentioned the kind of lamp burns, some problems with the film cement. Uh, what would you, as an uh, archivist and, and uh, conservationist, what, what would you look to do to repair this film? Or does this, do you think that this film is in need of any kind of repair? Um, it, it sits pretty flat. It doesn't seem particularly warped. Um, it doesn't seem particularly shrunken, though I would want to sort of measure that in a more um, scientific way. I would say if, you know, I sort of flex and put a little strain on each of the splices, if they don't pop, um, if they do pop, I can repair them, but they seem pretty strong. I would think um, this one would probably be fine to be projected um, with care on a on our recent projector that doesn't have any mechanical difficulties or history of damaging film. So um, I, I do see at the end here, my reel is very lumpy and I see a stray piece of film sticking out with not attached to anything. That's no good. So when I get there, I'm going to have to repair that. But other than that, so far, I haven't seen too much. We also have a digital transfer machine at the Film Study Center, and it's very forgiving and has no sprockets, so there, there are no little metal pieces that poke through the film. It just uses kind of friction to pull the film along uh, and various levels of tension. And this film would go fine in that, and we could do a, a nice, you know, better-than-HD transfer of it and be able to share that with others. So I, um, I posted on Facebook before our episode uh, about having you all on to talk about movie preservation, and I threw a, a question to Brandon Upson, who is one of the archivists at uh, Vinegar Syndrome, which is this exploitation film restoration company on, in, uh, in Bridgeport. And I asked him, what are some of the most kind of common challenges that he and his colleagues there see when they're um, working on and, and restoring films. Uh, and he said, so they are, you know, they work with obscure exploitation and horror films, commercial releases, uh, and said that just finding them and their rights holders is often the, one of the bigger problems. But he said that keeping them at a good cold temperature and dry and watching out for, you know, their namesake vinegar syndrome, the kind of decay of the film are, are the three kind of biggest things they have to look out for. And I wonder if we, if we could maybe, each of you or whoever wants to field this question, talk about the importance of, uh, of temperature and the climate of the room in which film is stored because uh, the history of, um, of film storage and film archives is, seems to be one of struggling to find the right conditions uh, with which to store film so that it is properly preserved and doesn't uh, explode or decay into a uh, bubbly, gooey mush. Um, so I don't. Maybe I'll. Uh, since Brian's working on that, maybe go to to Molly and Rachel. Could you talk a bit about the uh, the conditions, like the environmental conditions that are required to uh, to preserve film in maybe in an ideal situation, and some of the problems that arise when you have film stored in a dank basement or in a hot studio like this. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to take it, or um, I mean, since same issues. Yeah, they're, they're very similar each. issues. Uh, I actually have, um, I don't know if the camera can pick it up, but I do have one of oh, those. Oh, just wave it around and we'll see if <laughs> yeah. the camera picks I, it up. Well, it's, it's a little bit small, but um, this is from that, that presentation that I did that you mentioned at the Bradley Street Bicycle Co-op. It's from that PowerPoint, and I took some pictures for it of some negatives in the Yale Art Gallery archives and in the institutional archives. Um, I can't obviously take them here, and, and I can't take them here even further because I... I put them in a freezer after two years of, of asking for it. Um, we finally did. And they had to be put in cold storage because they're a mix of nitrate and acetate negatives. Um, and they can self-combust in, in a hot climate. And they were in a hot climate. Um, so the, what, we, what we ended up doing is we put them in a freezer. I think it has to be 
yeah, below 40 degrees Fahrenheit um, and with a relative humidity of 20 to 30 percent. Um, and it, it's best to not have the humidity fluctuate too much. Um, uh, these were on a plastic base, so they had to go in cold storage. There are also glass plate negatives made of the same chemicals, but those can't go in the freezer um, because of the glass. Uh, but what happens when you have it in a bad climate or a warmer climate is that the nitrate starts to bubble up on the plastic base. And um, the pictures that I have are of some bubbled up uh, negatives. And so when you take pictures of them, you can see like just sort of white lines all through, like looking like cracked. And is there any, <laughs> is there any hope for the photograph after something like that happens? Or is that the only an image hope, of beyond repair? Um, it's, it's beyond repair. I, the only hope is what, what Brian was talking about, uh, just trying to conserve the image as best you can. And so that's why we put them in a freezer. Um, they're not digitized yet. So um, when, I, when I spearheaded this whole initiative to get them in cold storage, one of the first things I did is I made a guide for the gallery staff that said, basically, don't ever access these because they're wrapped in plastic. And so you have to acclimatize them too when you take them out of cold storage and this whole to do about it. Um, but it's important information. It's the only thing that exists from the twenties to the fifties, the 1920s and 1950s of like just installation shots. And this one's of a Yale art school ball in 1939. Like this stuff is really cool, but you can't, you shouldn't access it unless you're planning on digitizing it because the more it's handled, the, the more deterioration it's going to cause. And I mean, these things, some of them, when you touch them, it'll turn to dust. Mm -hmm. And you know what I think, and it's, uh, it's just about 1240 and I want to be uh, aware of time. So I'm going to maybe try to wrap up and ask one, one more question of you all. And I think that's a good transition into the kind of bigger uh, kind of social value question I had about film archivists. And I I'm going to frame it um, this way and maybe I'll kick up with you, Brian, and then go over to Molly and back to Rachel and um, Brian, I was looking through a syllabus that you put together for one of your courses called Intro to the Film Archive um, uh, that you teach at the Film Study Center. And I saw that uh, one, one of the books you assigned is called uh, Nitrate Won't Wait uh, by Anthony Slide, <laughs> which yeah. is this wonderful history of uh, really history of film archives in the United States, uh, primarily. Uh, and he, the author uh, kind of catalogs the different generations of film archivists uh, going back to like the very early 1900s up through the 1980s when uh, I think this book was published in the early 1990s. And I love how he has a like the kind of earliest archetype of film uh, archivist is this uh, this kind of film loving dictator or potentate in, um, like people like Henri Langlois and uh, James Card and even Iris Berry a little bit at MoMA where these people who love movies but they also exert absolute control over the movies that they collect and they kind of dictate for posterity what movies are important and what ones are uh, not you know worthy uh, of, of preservation and are, can be relegated to the dustbin. Uh, and then uh, slide goes all the way up through the 1980s and he calls it like the Reagan me 80s when film preservationists are perhaps less interested in the movies themselves and more interested in what kind of money can be gained from uh from preserving, uh, you know, very popular releases, not orphan films, but movies that already have quite a bit of cultural cachet. Uh, and I wonder, uh, in 2017, uh, what you see as the the archetype of, of the film uh, archivist, but also what 
kind of the role and kind of goals of film archival work are today? Is it all for the money? Is it all for the control over the films? Or yeah, maybe I, th- something I else? think you touched on it you, when you when you said you know these these commercialized films as opposed to orphan films. I think what's happened since the '90s is the real rise of interest in home movies, amateur cinema, and orphan films, and those. You know, the, most archivists I know these days, you know, they're not necessarily working on these high profile films that have all sort of, quote unquote, been taken care of. They're working on discovering films that no one knew existed or resuscitating films that were uh, that may have had wide circulation at the time. But their parent company, the, the you know, the producers that created them uh, have, you know, have disappeared or the film has been stuck in some sort of limbo. And so that's, you know, whether it's home movies or you know, amateur cinema or independent productions or commercial productions, you know, for uh, businesses, for, you know, sort of instructional or, or uh, industrial films, though that's really sort of the new frontier. And um, regarding that title, it's interesting, time has really proven that in many cases, nitrate will wait. And, uh, <laughs> you know, studios and archives threw it away really prematurely. And we wish we could go back to those nitrate originals, because still today, I just went to the UCLA nitrate vault a few months ago, and it is filled to the brim with prints and negatives that are still in glorious condition. So uh, it's interesting. Nit- and it's, it's a good mantra, and it has a nice <laughs> ring to it, but it might not necessarily be true in all cases. Well, and I think that, uh, Rachel, at nitrate maybe will wait if it's stored in the proper conditions, right? If it's just kind yeah. of bubbling in a warm room, then maybe it, it won't be as ready well, to wait. But, but why, not- is this, why is this worth uh, doing for you, this, this whole act of... Of film and photography preservation. Just another one more, just to like say one thing off about the nitrate, then <laughs> that it will wait. Um, it, it's totally true, and I think that people should be aware that. I mean, and this is also why I think it's so beneficial to to do this type of work because if you're trying to take care of nitrate negatives in your own home, like your personal collection of nitrate film or nitrate photographs, um, and and you just kind of see on the internet or read somewhere that oh, I just need acid-free sleeves. That's not going to do it. That's going to make it worse because then if you don't have the climate, the acid, the like not having that acidic casing can actually make them curl in a, in a hot condition. And, like that's, that's more damaging than actually just leaving them be in the attic or whatever. Like it's better to just not touch it and let it go. Um, but I mean, yeah, and that's, that's sort of the value of, of why I like this stuff. You know, you need to have this, specialized knowledge to be able to deal with this irreplaceable information. And, and if you don't, then you might just throw it away. Molly, I want to give the last word to you as we look forward to Home Movie Day on Saturday. Um, wh- why is this uh, something that you continue to work on and find interesting? And, and why you know is this, this work worthwhile uh, for preserving uh, the, the, the movies that, uh, that Brian was just looking at on that, uh, that Super 8 inspection table uh, right here or any others that, that you've worked on? Um, yeah, I, well, the reason I really have a heart for home movie day, even as life gets fuller and more complicated. So, you know, it's all a volunteer gig, um, is I really love reconnecting people with their own objects. So whether it's an object that, uh, their father had shot or someone in their family or something that they, for some reason, feel connected to because it was sitting in an estate sale, uh, maybe they saw something about like Lyme, Connecticut, and they have a heart for Lyme, Connecticut, or they just are um, fascinated by the material. What stands between a lot of people and the film is just the the, the technology to play it back. And so, um, 
sort of my mantra, I guess, is just people are alienated by technologies of yore. And so it's a great opportunity just to say, hey, we know how to do this. We This is all a sort of like byproduct of what we've chosen to do as professionals. And so um, it's just a great community event. And I also, it's fun to, uh, it's poignant and it's fun to enable activities where people get to watch their neighbor's films and just uh, experience people spontaneously experiencing something that maybe was in their family, uh, whether they're uh, recognizing themselves or not really quite knowing what they're seeing because they've never seen it before. And then suddenly they can actually assemble uh, a a family event uh, or a community event. Um, Yeah. So, Well, Home Movie Day will be taking place this Saturday, October 21st at the New Haven Museum from noon to 4 p.m., uh, Brian Meacham, Molly Wheeler, Rachel Mahalko, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for, for bringing this stuff for us to look at and for talking with us about uh, film and media preservation. I so appreciate it, and I, I can't wait for, for this Saturday. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Tom. Tom. All right, we'll make sure to link to all the stuff we spoke about today, or maybe some of the stuff we spoke about today. Definitely the, the uh, Home Movie Day information at deepfocusradio.com, where you can find over two years of conversations about movies and New Haven. All right, we will catch up with you next Thursday at noon for another episode.